Well, guys, we're going to read the Bible now. So in the last few weeks, uh, we've been reading through Luke's Gospel, and we've had a taste this morning of what we're about to read. Um, but we've seen Jesus um, on a deliberate journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, and along the way, he's repeatedly told his disciples that he must suffer and die. Um, he'll be arrested, mocked, and handed over to the Gentiles and killed. Um, so we're going to read that moment now uh, where he arrives in Jerusalem. So flick your Bibles open. Uh, it's Luke 19. Uh, verse 28 to 38, after oh, 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Good morning, everyone. Am I on? Yep, yep, on. Hey, it's great to be with you. I got warned that this might be wobbly, so I'll see how we go. Um, My name's Tim, and uh, if you're new here, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm part of the pastoral team here at the Lakes. Um, Open up your Bible to Luke 19. We'll be in that. Um, Deb, do you mind just bringing that other lectern up? That's like really wonky. (laughs) Uh, Someone offered it to me earlier and I said, I'll swap it out later, but I'm seeing that that's swimming all over the place. So thank you. My beautiful assistant here. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okie dokie. That's much better. Now, um, in 1999, 
I saw this really haunting movie called Sixth Sense. Has anyone else seen that movie? So it's about 25 years ago. Oh, I would have thought more people would have seen that because I'm going to give a spoil a little bit later. And that's okay. It's tw- been out 25 years. You should have seen the movie. But it's very haunting because you've got this um, young boy who's very disturbed and he sees this child psychologist who is played by Bruce Willis. Um, the, the, the child is very disturbed. Does anyone know, if you've seen the movie, um, the famous line that the child says? Okay, big loud voice. I see dead people, yeah. So this child is very disturbed. And the scene is that he's meeting with this psychologist. Uh, the boy's called Cole. And he says, I see dead people. And the doctor, the psychologist, replies and says, like, in your sleep, thinking maybe, like, he's having nightmares. And the, the kid says, no, no. And so the doctor says, like, when you're awake. And the kid says... Yes, very disturbed, yes. And so the, the doctor wonders, is it like, are you, are you seeing him in graves and coffins? And then the boy, Cole, says, I see dead people. They're walking around. They're just like regular people. They are doing what they want to do, except they don't know that they are dead. It's a very chilling scene, And today I want to focus us in on the moment of Jesus coming to Jerusalem because he sees very clearly the state of that city. Out of all the Gospels, Luke is the only one that records Jesus' deep grief as he perceives the fate of the city of Jerusalem ahead of him. And we see that he grieves, he weeps. Um, He sees a city that is full of regular people walking around, doing what they want, but do not know that they are dead, dead in their sins. And that is their doom, their upcoming doom, and that is their destruction. And so my prayer is that today we too will come to, you could say, develop our sixth sense, biblically develop our sixth sense where we might see the people around us for the true situation that they are in, the true state of affairs for the humanity around us, those that we love. Um, I wonder, it may be that we just see even our neighbours, people in our family, our work colleagues, as all too regular um, and have forgotten the true state that they are in and what that means. And we see that Jesus is grieved by what he sees And we'll also see that he goes on to act in love and compassion because of what he sees. So I pray that we might see and develop this sixth sense, even learn to grieve, like feel that, and then act. It often flows that our actions come from what we feel. And what we feel comes from the way we think and see things. So if we're not feeling, we're probably not going to act. So that is my prayer for us today. To, to see how Jesus um, comes to this point of grief, we really have to see the tension and tragedy of this moment in Jesus' life. As he walks towards Jerusalem, comes across the horizon and sees the city skyline, there is a massive 
tragedy, and that comes out in Jesus' words. You'll see in verse 41, um, as he approaches Jerusalem and weeps, um, he says that if only you had known this day that would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then a little later on, he laments that they did not recognize the time of God's visitation. Um, It's clear from Jesus' words that Jerusalem was a city that had so much hope and expectation built around it, and yet they've missed it. It's gone. It's evaporated. So to feel some of this expectation, let me just sketch briefly the big long Bible story that leads up to this moment of Jesus walking into Jerusalem, the significance of Jerusalem, because it's so symbolic in the Bible storyline. So first up, just a brief sketch, Israel was called out of all of humanity, which is dark and no longer knows God. God called them and formed them as a people between, through Abraham, you can read about that in Genesis 12, to be a light to the nations. They're often described as they'll be a light and a blessing to the nations so that people might know of God and know that he is good and wise and wants to forgive and be with humanity. Here's one verse that um, Moses speaks about um, Israel, um, looking that if they observe all of God's laws carefully, um, his word carefully, this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting you, setting before you today? Israel was called to be a beacon, almost like a tractor beam that would draw people towards God, a light to the nations. And in the middle of this nation is a capital city called Jerusalem, And that city really was to be like a broadcast centre, if you will. A broadcast centre that, if you look at this city, the way it operates under its king, under God, you would see an awesome life. You would see what a blessed life looks like. And they were to beam that out, like a city on a hill, really, and broadcast that out so that everyone might see it. Here's another little um, snapshot. This is um, taken from a point when, when Jerusalem was very successful under David and Solomon um, and they were broadcasting out to the world and people heard about it. One lady called the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. How happy your people must be. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Jerusalem as a city was to be a broadcast centre, broadcasting how awesome it is to be blessed under God to the world. And in the middle of this city, at the highest point, is a temple. And this temple is often described in in lots of different ways, but one of the big images is that it's, it's kind of like a magnet. It is God wanting to draw people to himself and draw near to them, and he provides the way through forgiveness of sins. 
And so 1 King David will speak about the temple in this way. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. So you can see just by that little sketch that in the background of Jerusalem's history, they were called through Israel to be a light to the nations, a broadcast centre going out, spreading the fame of what it's like to be blessed under God and to also point the way that God wants to draw near to all of humanity and that people can come close to him. They were to point out that way to everyone around them. And so when, with all that in the background, when we see Jesus come to Jerusalem and you hear his words and he goes on to say that they will be destroyed, we hear that Jesus sees that Israel and Jerusalem and all the kings before it have failed. This grand calling they have failed at. Um, They have turned their back on God and destruction is looming. And this is very alarming and all the more alarming to hear Jesus speak like this because, again, if we know the story, this is not the first time that Jerusalem has been pronounced to be destroyed because of their uh, persistence in sin and turning away from God. This is 600 years before this moment with Jesus... God had already seen Israel and Jerusalem and the temple full of sin and corruption and consistent rejection against him. And at one point he declares, enough, I will remove my presence. And that was the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, 600 years beforehand, you see the Babylonians come in and they destroy both the city and the temple. Here's a song, a really grievous song that... Uh, Some of the people in the city, once they'd been taken away to Babylon, wrote, because it was such a harsh and cruel time when that destruction befell Jerusalem. They say, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And then they call out, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. So this is the town next, next door, nation next door, just skiting and yelling. On the day that Jerusalem fell, they yelled out, tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what they have done to us. So they start asking God to repay repay um, Babylon with the same destruction, with what they did to us. And they say, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's a full-on prayer or request to ask, but... In some sense, you can imagine if that's what they had endured, they had seen their own little ones dashed against the rocks as this cruel Babylonian town came in and smashed them, then they are asking God that justice would be done. So that's in the background. And then to hear Jesus describe Jerusalem, who somehow have been given a second chance, they've squandered it because it's all going to happen again. Listen to his words, Jesus' words in verse 43. The days will come upon you 
when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another. Jerusalem has squandered a second chance that God gave them. And that destruction that they, they should remember is all coming up again in their future. So do you feel something of the tension and the great tragedy that's going on in this moment when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem? But it gets worse. More than that, when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time, God continued to give a promise to those who saw the ruins, who hoped for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, that one day God would provide his king and his king would come and provide the peace and justice that they longed for. So here's one promise that comes from Zechariah 9, which uh, those who saw the ruins of Jerusalem heard. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." Now, with that promise and all of Israel and Jerusalem's history in the background, let's catch up to the moment that we're at in Luke's Gospel with Jesus walking into Jerusalem. Now, with all of that background, see and feel the tragedy that unfolds as Luke records it. You see, at verse 29, Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and he does very overt actions that show that he is this king. Both the location and the transport that he takes, you saw that he's on the Mount of Olives coming into Jerusalem, and he deliberately organises that he travels in on a donkey, a foal of a donkey, conjuring up this great promise. He actually is proclaiming, Jesus for the first time, most overtly, is proclaiming, I am the long-awaited Messiah, that king that has been promised. He does it all through his actions at this point, but he is proclaiming, this is the moment, your king is coming, I am that king. And he walks down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, like so many other kings had done beforehand as they were coronated. And some of his disciples are tuned into this. You see that they start praising and they worship him, they, they say, praise the name of the King, of the Lord, praise in the, in the highest heaven, glory to God in the heavens. Um, and they're tuned in, they throw their coats, coats down and you see palm leaves as well. But then this tragic anticlimax takes place. So look very closely with me. Notice that at this great moment, You see, it appears only the disciples are the ones engaged in this praising. Um, Set in contrast to Jerusalem, Jesus' very words is he looks at Jerusalem as Jerusalem not even recognising this moment. 
And so in verse 37, you see that it's the crowd of disciples who are joyfully praising. Um, Sometimes we might think that the whole city was uh, excited about Jesus. But Luke seems to say it was really just the disciples as they came in. In fact, you see that the religious leaders come out and say to Jesus, you need to shut this down and quieten your disciples down. So in verse 39, the Pharisees asked Jesus to turn this all off. Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He weeps, laments, he cries out loud. And then in verse 45, you see that he enters the temple courts, goes straight into the heart of the temple. And what does he see there? Not a house of God that is ready to welcome God's appointed king, but again, a house that is full of corruption, that he laments that this is no longer a house of prayer. The temple in Jerusalem designed to call people and draw people to God is nothing like that anymore. He goes further and describes it as a den of robbers. At that point, Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7, which is talking about the first destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah there says this is a den of robbers. And he describes in graphic detail um, that actually in the temple, they were worshipping other gods and they were organising to have child sacrifice to other gods. The the literal word for robbers is a, a technical robber word that means robber and murderer. So Jesus describes the temple again as a a place where murderous intent is being carried out, totally contrary to what God wants. In Jeremiah 7, God says, you are sacrificing your children to pagan gods. This is something I never, ever asked for. And Jesus sees that the same murderous intent is taking place in the temple. And voila, verse 47 In the temple, the chief priests and the teachers of the law decide then and there, we must kill Jesus. Do you feel and see the tension of this story at this point? How can this be? How can this be after all this time and all that God has done, even with Israel? This story is showing us just how deep sin is in humanity. If Israel, who had been called out of humanity for all these great purposes for God, cannot stay faithful to God and are racked with sin themselves, then what hope is there for humanity? This is one of the things that the Bible um, does for us. It tells us that the humanity, all of humanity is deeply dead in their sins. And God, in a way, takes Israel as a biopsy, a sample, to show us just how deep this sin runs. Israel get put on view under a magnifying glass and you see just how deep sin is in humanity. That despite God drawing near, giving promises, giving grace, giving hope, speaking his very word to them, humanity's sin is such that they will turn their back on God. We are dead in our sins. Let me pause just at this moment to dwell on the Bible saying that we are dead in our sins. Um, Some people 
as they just do sociological studies and look at humanity, get something of a feel that there's a problem. Um, one of my favourite books, which I still go to from time to time, is a very old book written in 1965, before I was born. It comes from Dale Carnegie, and that's a cover of the book I've got. It's um, all torn and tattered, but I keep going back to it because this guy is just... I think he's got some great things to say on human nature. So it's a classic book. You've probably heard of it. It's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, and he has this line. He, he, really, he's, he's just trying to say, hey, do these kind of things and you'll probably um, make life go a little bit better for you. Get some friends and influence people in the direction you want. But he makes this statement that you should never, ever criticise people because it's a universal law that if, if that is sometimes difficult to accept but is true. 99 times out of 100, every man believes that he is innocent, no matter how serious his crime is. No one believes that he is guilty of anything. Everyone tries to justify himself. Criticising anyone is completely useless because it puts the individual on the defensive and forces him to explain himself. Again, criticism is futile and is dangerous because it damages the person's self-esteem and causes bitterness. Um, have you ever done one of those workplace 360s where people go around and, you know, they're a little bit brutal, but the idea is that all, all of your colleagues get to say freely what they feel are your strengths and the problems within you and, that, and you share that with each other. And it's 360 because everyone gets a go, but um, at some level it does show that we all don't quite see ourselves um, clearly. If you want to take it fairly and not get too defensive, you do learn it's, we don't see ourselves as we really are before others. So that's Dale Carnegie, but um, another, another guy has written, and this is um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a, a well-known Bible teacher over the last century, um, but he's talking more deliberately about sin and how that works. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. So just hear that. We, we won't do the work to actually go, yeah, I think I'm a sinner. And even if we do, we probably don't really feel that we are a sinner as we should. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. This long, long story in the Bible through Israel and Jerusalem is to show us, God is showing us, um, that we are sinners if we will accept it. Um, that's the only way that we will come to realise that we are dead in our sins. God reveals to us and turns on for us that sixth sense where we actually discover that we are dead in our sins. Now, I said I'll spoil the sixth sense movie for you. Um, again, it's a 25-year-old movie. It's like Harry Potter and... Um, Harry Potter and uh, Lord of the Rings, all those kind of movies, you've got to know the ending by now. So coming back to Sixth Sense, um, the great twist in this movie, remember the child is seeing dead people. He sees dead people, this is what disturbs him, and he's seeing this child psychologist. 
Well, the twist in the movie is that the child psychologist soon realises, I think Lois is uh, guessing this, soon realises that he has been dead all along and not knowing it. The child has been seeing him as a dead person, walking around like a regular person, doing what they want to do, not knowing that they are dead. So now, as the last part of this time together, I want us to spend some time developing our sixth sense. Along the lines of Jesus, um, we've seen that he comes into Jerusalem and he's very perceptive as to the true state of this city and the humanity that lie within it, so much so that he, his heart is broken. He breaks down and weeps. He weeps out loud. He laments and cries those words out loud of, their, of, of Jerusalem's upcoming destruction. I'd said earlier, I wonder if we might have forgotten that even people around us are dead and dead in their sins. Um, so take some time now, like close your eyes and think about those people that are just all too regular to you um, and see the true state that they are in. Um, people who you uh, interact with all the time. It might be neighbours. Um, I've done a little bit of work myself. I'm thinking if I just go around my immediate house and neighbourhood, I've got a neighbour, he's a lovely guy, um, got a couple of kids, Moses lawn all the time, great neighbour like that. Um, we, have, we have nice chats about all sorts of different things. And, uh, and yet, um, if it ever moves towards God, he's, he's, he's not interested. Um, that gets shut down. He's got some lovely kids, and I now just grieve thinking, what, what's this mean for the trajectory for those kids? Um, they don't do any church stuff on a Sunday. Kids aren't going to be hanging around church and hearing about the gospel. Um, it appears to me that if there's options at school for SRE, that they'll opt out, those kind of things. Um, and Deb and I have more and more just become so conscious of the true state for this family and the next generation, um, dead in their sins. I've got another lovely... Um, well, I've got, I've got a neighbour on the other side. I, I, I've, had, I've had an interesting uh, journey with her, um, but she now doesn't talk to me, and there's lots of, lots of background there which I won't go into. But, um, uh, you know, she, in part... She's 90-plus years of age, and um, she has great problems with me as a pastor. Um, but so we, we, we just never go into that territory. And I, but I, I feel the grief that she is a, a lady um, dead in her sins. I see dead people around me. Um, I, I'm involved in a sporting club, and there's some great people there. Um, they know there's a number of different Christians that that comes up, but there's, there is this group that just, that's not for them. Not at all. Um, I see dead people. So take a moment, close your eyes. Um, see like Jesus sees. Um, who is it that you see?
move your mind around to different areas of your life, especially those areas where you are interacting with people regularly. Just allow yourself to see. See them in their true state. Now hold those people uh, in your head because we'll come back to them um, one last time. Jesus, we see in this passage, isn't he sees he sees the true state and he's driven to grief. Right, grief wells up within him, um, and that grief actually moves him to act. Jesus walks into the city that is doomed for destruction. And this is amazing too, because as we've been reading through Luke's gospel, Luke has constantly told us of the many times that Jesus has said, I must go to Jerusalem. And that upon arrival, that is the place where he will be rejected and handed over to pagans and killed. He keeps saying, I must suffer and die and then rise again on the third day. He repeatedly says this over and over. Now, while Luke, at this part of the the gospel that we've looked at today, doesn't go into um, exact detail of exactly how Jesus' action here will actually save people, what we see is here is a man who has said that Jerusalem... And all of the humans in it are doomed for destruction because of their sin. And he deliberately walks in to that burning house. Like a fireman to rescue, he walks in to the city that is burning down, doomed for destruction. And over the next coming weeks here at the lakes, we'll continue in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus will speak very specifically of exactly how He is going to save people from this burning city, from this burning world. Um, And the sum of it is he will exchange his own life. He will take on the destruction of that city, the destruction and judgment that humanity deserve uh, in place of others. We're going to sing a song shortly that really captures um, that truth. But stay with us over the next coming weeks um, to hear exactly how Jesus will save. But at this point, just notice that Jesus walks into the city intentionally to save those who are dying and are under destruction. And if Jesus is God, as he has been proclaiming and showing throughout the gospel, that he is God amongst us as a man, if the God-man is willing to go in and die that certainly means that humanity is dead in their sins. If God, as a man, an innocent, perfect man, comes to die, that certainly shows that humanity is dead in their sins. One last Bible verse for us. Um, Paul constantly reminds, particularly Christians, of how we were once dead. This great salvation that Jesus has won for us. 
Um, so we, must, we can forget that we were once dead. We might forget that those around us are caught up in a world that is dead. Let us not forget. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So as we remember that for us today, lastly, come back to those people that we brought to mind and now think, well, what can we do out of our, as we see their situation clearly and hopefully have been moved to the same grief and you might have to keep developing that, the same grief and empathy that Jesus had that caused him to act in love, what can we do to bring the love of Jesus and the hope of Jesus to them? Has life become all too regular? Regular interactions that were forgotten, the true state? So now have a think about some of those people. Um, just quietly ask the Lord to reveal to you, well, what could you even do this week that... Um, might take a step, like Jesus stepped towards Jerusalem, a step towards them. What's something that you can do that intentionally moves you towards them so that you might then have uh, space where you can um, be accessible to them, show that you are interested, hopefully speak the gospel to them in time speak this hope is it a phone call to a family member that you just don't call because you just don't call much How could you call this week? Do you have a neighbour that you only talk to because you both happen to be mowing the lawn at the same time, but because you're mowing the lawn, the conversation doesn't go very long? What could you do next to walk towards them? There are a few things you just have to let go so that you actually are accessible. You're at work, um, you've got some colleagues, they, they might even start sharing a little bit about their life and some of the pains that they're going through, but you're just not really there to listen because you've you got to get out the door and onto other things. Um, Lord Jesus, may it be that we move, even this week, 
uh, because of the great salvation that we have, knowing what we once were. Lord Jesus, may we take steps uh, to help people see the great love that you have for them and the hope. Oh, Lord, please develop our sixth sense. May we never forget those around us, their true state. Um, Develop that same compassion and heart that you had for people within us, Lord. And, Lord, may we act just like you did. Um, Of course, Lord, we, we can only point them towards you, but may we, by your Spirit, be empowered to do stuff where because of our love for humanity. We want to bring them your love. Amen.